The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Yes, welcome again, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery, and uh, soon we'll be joined today by the other co-host of The Steady Investor, who is Mitch Zacks, the portfolio manager and founding principal at Zacks Investment Management. Um, and I think for you folks who are listening at home, if you don't know, uh, if that's all you know about Mitch Zacks, you should probably also know that he has been featured in various business media, including the Chicago Tribune and CNBC. He wrote a weekly column for the Chicago Sun-Times and has published two books on quantitative investment strategies, quantitative investment strategies, I should say. He has a BA in economics from Yale University and an MBA in analytic finance from the University of Chicago. And that is uh, at the tail end of the Mitch on the Markets article, which I will uh, speak about um, uh, down the road here a little bit today. So we're uh, starting to feel a little autumn chill in the air as we put a cap on calendar third quarter. Um, and uh, we saw the third and final revision on Q- Q2 GDP before the bell today. Uh, it was slightly resi- revised upward to 1.4% from 1.1%. And, um, uh, you know, all during Q2 earnings season, uh, which analysts rightly conceded would again be a negative territory for the fifth consecutive quarter, there was speculation that the margin of, aggreg- of aggregate earnings losses in the S&P 500 was dwindling and might reverse in Q3. Now we're about two weeks away from the unofficial start of earnings season, and this no longer appears to be the case. Um, I mean, it's been de rigueur that expectations soften ahead of earnings reports, uh, which is all the better to beat expectations with when they actually do come out. But with downward revisions continuing and even accelerating in some cases, uh, this close to earnings season, the numbers suggest that earnings recession, that the earnings recession will continue for a sixth straight quarter. Um, of course, positive results across key sectors may push S&P 500 earnings into positive territory, territory after all, though the amount of companies posting downward revisions and the average share price of those revisions are both larger than the historic averages. Oil prices have a lot to do with this. Um, prices per barrel well below $50 per share. If you may recall, a barrel of oil was $147 a barrel at one point about eight years ago or so. Um, and these dampen global business across many industries. So to that end, there was some positivity uh, ringed out of yesterday's concluded two-day OPEC meeting. Uh, basically, basically, the uh, male, I'm sorry, the major oil-producing countries have agreed to make some sort of cut to global oil production when the group meets again in late November. Uh, the world's largest oil producer, Saudi Arabia, may cut up to one million barrels per day. Uh, but it's unclear to what extent Iran will cut production, if at all. I mean, plenty can happen between now and then, of course, but uh, we'll take the positive news where we can get it. Uh, before the bell today, there was some uh, other economic data, 
And uh, let's take a look at some of that. Um, our third and final look at QD, QT. Oh, my goodness. I need some more coffee, I think. Our third and final look at Q2 GDP growth was released today, and it was raised to a 1.4% annualized rate from the second reads 1.1%. Personal consumption expansion quarter over quarter was 1.8%, with personal consumption ticking down to 4.3% from 4.4%. I mean, that's overall still tepid growth, but the personal consumer is certainly doing his or her part. Uh, initial jobless claims posted 254,000 in the past week. That's a 3,000 jump from a slightly revised previous week, uh, that 3,000 jump in claims, I should say. Uh, but the total uh, amount of initial jobless claims uh, suggest that strength in the U.S. labor market continues, uh, which may be a useful position and uh, may be a useful positive indicator for next week's BLS or Bureau of Labor Statistics non-farm payroll report, which is a week from tomorrow. Um, uh, elsewhere, our trade deficit result of $58.4 billion was another positive surprise from expectations of $62 billion. Um, market futures were down. Um, how are we looking right now? Um, but, you know, I think they, the losses were trimmed after a, a lot of that largely positive news, and they are down slightly um, at this point in uh, midday. Um, but overall, I think you know, we're, looking, we're looking pretty decent. Um, what was some interesting uh, other things I wanted to talk about uh, with Mitch, and we hope to have him soon here. And uh, before I actually get into that, I wanted to say that if you'd like to contact a representative at Zach's Investment Management, you can call this number, which is 800 249 2934. And uh, there you can discuss managing your retirement assets um, with a representative at Zach's Investment Management. Or for more information, you can email ziminfo at zax.com. And also the website is zimwealth.com, which is uh, um, which is all useful information for those listeners of The Steady Investor. And we thank you for being with us. Now to Mitch on the markets. Um, Mitch has a weekly column. As a matter of fact, there's two of these today uh, that we're going to address today. Uh, The first one is called Courting America, Inside Britain's Relationship with the United States. And uh, in it, Mitch uh, talks about, we've come a long way in our relationship with Great Britain over the years. And by years, we mean hundreds of years. Let's start from the beginning. In 1776, the United States declared independence from Great Britain with the American Revolutionary War lasting until 1783. Two years later, the two countries established diplomatic relations. And apart from the war in 1812, where we were at war for three years, we've had a relationship that has strengthened with time. Today, the United States has no closer ally than the United Kingdom, and British foreign policy emphasizes close coordination with the United States. Bilateral cooperation has been nurtured over time with a common language, but also as each country has worked closely to establish ideals and democratic practices. The strongest of bonds, however, was established during both world wars. And then afterward, when the British Army fought alongside U.S. troops in the Korean conflict, the Persian Gulf War, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and in Afghanistan, our foreign policy and security objectives are nearly in sync. Welcome, Mitch. It's nice to see you this morning. Mark, it's good to be here. I'm sorry I was a little bit late, but it's a pleasure to be here. You're a busy guy, so we we understand that, and and we have no no problem with that. We were discussing a couple of things. Uh, You know, we're about to end Q3 uh, on the calendar anyway. and we saw some some things that came out. We saw the third and final revision to Q2 GDP before the bell, slightly revised upward um, mm-hmm. from 1.1% to 1.4. Still not great, but do you have any initial thoughts on on that? Again, it's uh, Mark. We it, it's the the basic uh, idea when you're in the equity markets is not whether GDP is strong or weak. It's what our expectations 
expectations currently baked into stock prices okay. and whether those expectations are met or missed. So I keep going back and looking at, uh, for instance, 2009, when the stock market actually did extremely well mm-hmm. and the economy was very weak. And you can say, how could the economy be under all this pressure in 2009 in the aftermath of the 08 crisis and the market still go up very dramatically? And the reason is, at the beginning of 2009, people, investors, were pricing in a cataclysmic collapse, continuation of the financial system. It was oversold, in other words. It, it was already baked into prices. So the 30% odd movement downward in 2008 was based on the sum of these fears okay. that never quite materialized. So for the market to go up, we don't need GDP to be that strong. Okay. We need it to be stronger than expected. All right. And the expectations right now are very subdued, both in the U.S. and around the world. So that if you have a recovery where for this reason or that reason, uh, economic, you know, economic growth suddenly reaccelerates dramatically, mm-hmm. there's going to be a very, very strong impact on the market uh, to the upside. And if you do not, you know, if it's if it's middling like it's expected, the market will kind of stay here and go up about 6% per year. So if, the, the best way to think about this is to think the market has some expectation built in. Okay. Over long periods of time, those expectations in terms of interest rates, in terms of economic growth, in terms of corporate earnings are generally met. If the expectations are met, the market should appreciate about what it ha- what has occurred historically. So you're looking for about a six to nine, uh, 600 basis points, about a 6% return above the risk-free rate if what people expect to have happen materializes. Okay. This happens politically. Interest rates stay a little bit low. They tick up a little bit. The Fed raises rates one time. Earnings recover slightly, but not dramatically. The market's up 6%. So 6% gains and just meeting expectations. That's that's the way the market works. The market prices everything so that if expectations are met, you get what you've done on average historically. And the way that people say, oh, I'm going to time the market, I'm going to tell you if the market's going to go up or down, they have to determine what the expectations are that are built into stock prices mm-hmm. and whether those expectations are going to be met uh, or, or, or missed. And so the key question is not, well, is GDP growth going to come in at you know 1.8% or 2%? The key question is, what is the chance that GDP really surprises to the upside? And what is the chance that a recession happens and GDP really surprises to the downside? Okay. And so what happens is the periods when the market does very poorly are periods when expectations are relatively high. So if you think about periods like the 2000, 2001, 2002 period, if you think about the 2008 period, in 2000, expectations were were getting out of sync with reality. People were saying, okay, there's a internet uh, revolution occurring. It's going to disrupt all these companies, blah, 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 blah. And they were right with the general gist of it. They were a little bit wrong (laughs) with the uh, timing. But the expectation was that the company starts a website, suddenly that company's earnings and revenue are going to just fly through the roof. Sure. It didn't materialize, 
but the companies were priced as if that was going to be the case. 200 P multiple. Exactly. Kind of thing, yeah. So the reason that was being priced is because the expectations built in. Now in 2008, there were these expectations in terms of what's going on in the financial sector, right. in terms of uh, lower interest rates, in terms of mortgages being offered, in terms of refinancing of houses uh, for consumption purposes. Right. And those expectations were completely wrong. And that's what caused the market to go down. If the market was going into 2008 saying, well, you know, uh, there's going to be this huge issue with the, the financial services sector, you wouldn't have seen that drop. So right now, the issue is, or the, the, the benefit to an investor is expectations in aggregate feel to me like they're easier to be surprised to the upside than the downside. And I can't put my finger on it and say, okay, statistically, this is this is why this has occurred, because there are many cases where expectations have been low, but it just feels to me that the psychology of 08 is looming so large in investors' mind that there's a much, much greater chance that some good things could happen that people aren't expecting, as opposed to bad things. And the reason is, if I ask you for all the bad things that could happen, there's a litany list. You, yeah, you can go on true. and on and on. So you could talk for 20 minutes of the bad, this is could happen, this could happen, that could happen. There are a lot of bad things that people can think of. But if I ask you what are the good things that could happen, you're like, well, I, I, haven't, I, I don't really know of that many good things that can happen. That type of sentiment is very beneficial uh, to the market. It's so when I say interest rates go up, employment stays low, GDP picks up, earnings picks up, Europe recovers, the euro doesn't dissolve, and uh, five years from now, uh, you know, we're humming along in a new uh, growth spurt caused by technological innovation mm -hmm. in the IT sector. That is not what is being talked about or distributed or people being focused on. What is being focused on is this concept of, well, we're eight years into the uh, bull market, Bull markets don't last for this long a period of time. You're going to see it come down. Bull markets don't end when many people are expecting them to. They end when everyone buys in to the bull market and they believe the bull market will continue because there's been a structural change in the economy and stocks have to be valued at 25 times, 30 times forward earnings as opposed to 18 to 19 times. And that's where you see the bubbles starting to occur. That's when you see the bubble. So, so again, in terms of sentiment, the sentiment is relatively negative, which is very positive. In terms of IPO activity, there's very, very little IPO activity. There was right. just an article in the journal how IPO activity this year is the lowest it's ever been. Uh, this is all very beneficial uh, for the market. It's probably also part of that risk averseness that you're talking about. Yes. The risk, it, it really is, a, you know, if we look at things like the Federal Reserve model that compares the earnings yield of privatizing the S&P 500 to the earnings yield on 10-year treasuries, uh, what you find to be the case is that stocks are looking attractive uh, relative uh, to fixed income. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the negative belief here is uh, the belief that, okay, stocks are doing so well uh, because interest rates have been uh, low for a long period of time. Once interest rates start to rise, stocks are going to come down uh, very dramatically once the Fed starts rising. And I do believe we'll see a, uh, a taper tantrum like we have before, mm -hmm. that when they do raise, you're going to see some pull back. But you have to remember, the Federal Reserve is only controlling the short end of the yield curve. 
So there's trillions of dollars of investing money that is determining what the 10-year yield uh, should be. And that 10-year yield is low. And yes, the Federal Reserve is coming in and buying some bonds occasionally, but investors betting their own money or investing their own money, we should say, who are highly sophisticated Mm -hmm. and fixed income investors generally tend to be less prone to emotion than equity investors. They're only focused on credit quality and interest rates are telling us that for the next 10 to 20 years, interest rates are going to be relatively low. It's very easy to come in and say, okay, that's wrong. Interest rates are going to rise. I do believe interest rates are going to rise. But if they are correct and interest rates stay this low for this long period of time, you're going to see the market start to trend up until you get to the point where the dividend yield on the S&P 500, which is now around 2%, on average, okay. comes and at least goes below the, the yield on the 10-year treasury. Because in the end, in the long game, buying all the companies in the S&P 500 mm-hmm. or buying all the U.S. debt and holding each of those for a long period of time is too too sides to the same coin. Okay. You're, you're in one case, you're exposed to all the companies that are in the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. In the other case, you're exposed to all the U.S. debt. All the U.S. debt, the ability to repay the U.S. debt is determined by all these companies in the S&P 500. Sure. So if you could buy them all and ignore these fluctuations that occur, it's very clear the equity portion would outperform the fixed income. So the, 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 a lot of it is coming down to whether interest rates shoot up dramatically once the Federal Reserve begins to raise rates. And if you ask me to predict what's going to happen, I would say, yes, interest rates have to return to higher levels. You can't have uh, mortgage rates these low. You can't have 10-year yields this low. But likely, based upon what I'm seeing in the fixed income market, they're saying that five years out, the five-year forward rate is going to be very, very low. Okay. And so that is telling me that there might there might be an underestimation of how low interest rates are going to stay for how long a period of time. Okay. Well, very good. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the 10-year rate as well, and it has gone back down to under 1.6. So, yeah. Yellen's not going to raise. She Remember, we, we've talked about we, it. We have talked she about was it. going to raise in September. She was going to raise in uh, November, and then she was going to raise in December, right? And so right. there's a pot, and she's, she did not raise in September. And they're saying now November is off the table because it's four days before the, it's what November second uh, as opposed to the eighth, so it's six days before she an election. Did suggest though there would be one raise in twenty six. And right now the Fed funds futures rate are pricing in a fifty percent chance of interest rates being raised, fifty five percent chance of interest rates being raised in December. So still not great. No, still more than but the reason the market is up is because three weeks ago. There was a ninety percent. There was a. It was. It was just taken as wisdom that she's going to raise uh, once this year, right? And maybe twice or three times. And now all of a sudden, after her testimony, after this, after all this stuff going on, it's it's back to this concept of well, you know, we're going to be data dependent and we're going to see what happens. But again, fifty five percent chance of the Federal Reserve raising rates. What if that forty five percent chance comes true and they don't raise rates? Yeah, market goes up even higher. Okay. And so, so the issue really is, in my mind, not trying to game whether she's going to raise rates. It's to understand that over long periods of time, market's going to go up at about 600 basis points above the risk-free rate. The risk-free rate is zero. Your expected return on the market is 6% on an annualized basis. 
with a standard deviation of 12 or 13, 17%. You're gonna have periods when it goes up higher, periods when it goes on lower, but if you can invest in the market and stay invested over long periods of time, uh, you should be able to generate that that level of return. Keeping a strong, long view. Yes. So. Yeah, right. um, we're listening to The Steady Investor, um, uh, sponsored by Zach's Investment Management. We're with Mitch Zacks, who is the Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zach's Investment Management. Uh, to contact a representative uh, at Zach's Investment Management, call 800-249-2934. You can discuss managing your retirement assets. If you'd like some more information, you can email ZimInfo at Zacks.com or visit ZimWealth.com. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with the second segment of The Steady Investor. Uh, thank you for listening, and stay tuned. business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. For listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, listeners of Voice America's Business Channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. I'm Mark Vickery, joined by Mitch Zacks, the co-host and portfolio manager and founding principal at Zacks Investment Management. Uh, Mitch, yeah, we were talking talking about a lot of things, and we, we like to keep a long-term view and, and keep uh, the steady investor name intact, I suppose, okay. of the show. Um, but we also want to talk about some near-term things that are coming up. Uh, specifically, I wanted to discuss uh, Q th- Q3 earnings. We're at okay. the end of uh, calendar Q3 as of tomorrow, mm-hmm. so we're going to start seeing earnings reports coming out in a couple weeks. Um, and one thing we were talking about earlier, uh, as Q2 was going on, or I guess as we were in Q3, is we may be out of the earnings recession, which has gone on for five quarters now. Right. However, it looks like we're seeing some negative earnings revision or estimate revisions uh, for a lot of companies on the S and P 500 sp- specifically, and it's looking like we may wind up with a sixth consecutive quarter 
of, uh, of an earnings recession. Um, do you have any initial comments to make about that? Yes, you, especially when you're looking at the component stocks of the S&P 500. Again, the S&P 500 is a market cap weighted index. Right. So the larger stocks are given a greater weight uh, in the index. And what you find if you look at their revenue, uh, you're going to find about 45 to 50% of the total revenue of the companies that comprise the S&P 500 uh, coming from overseas. Okay. So in this instance, what is really going to cause earnings to grow is a uh, is a declining dollar. Okay. And so if the dollar is uh, falling and U.S. goods are becoming cheaper, the uh, you know the the cost of purchasing them in euros falls. And the U.S. products become uh, more competitive. Similarly, a lot of these uh, for, uh, companies in the S&P 500, both the cost of production and the good production is overseas. So when Coca-Cola is is uh, creating Coca-Cola in different countries, they're not uh, creating it in uh, Georgia and uh, exporting it over an ocean liner right. uh, to, to Europe. They, they've created a plant in Europe that to create it. Sure. So their cost structure and their revenue structure is uh, there. So let's just say that they take their profits. Their profits are in euros. Mm-hmm. And when you translate those profits in euros, even when the cost and the revenue is, is overseas, uh, back into dollars, if the dollar is lower, you get more dollars for that same level of profit. However, we haven't seen that lately, have exactly. we? Exactly. And so what you need to see, again, why is the dollar appreciating? And this goes back to, to Yellen. Right. Right? So if, if, if she wants the economy to grow and she has a dual mandate of both employment and keeping inflation low, mm-hmm. if she raises interest rates, the uh, interest rates for holding dollars increases. More people want to hold dollars. More people want to buy treasuries. Right, because mm-hmm. interest rates have gone up, sure. and uh, you're going you're going to see the dollar continue to appreciate. So again, a lower interest rate environment causes a softer dollar, which helps the multinationals uh, meet their uh, earnings expectations. So again, it's it's all playing back to this concept of what's going on with interest rates, and the lack of robust corporate earnings is causing, I believe, the people of the Federal Reserve to be reluctant. Uh, to continue to raise interest rates. Okay. And because if they raise the rates, it's going to just put more upward pressure on the dollar. And, uh, you know, it's not, there's a level at which you need to start seeing some degree of revenue growth, uh, sales estimate revisions positively uh, mm-hmm. for the S&P 500. We're not seeing it. Now, a lot of this has to do with there are certain segments of the S&P 500 that are under pressure. Uh, energies under pressure. So sure. if you think about energy's contribution in total earnings, you think of ExxonMobil's contribution to total aggregate earnings, right. and you think about what's happening to ExxonMobil, uh, it's not that unheard of to see the overall uh, you know, energy earnings go down. Same thing with the banking industry. Banks do better uh, with a slightly higher interest rate environment. Sure. And, uh, they can charge higher rates. They can charge high, higher rates. It's, it's, if you just think of it from an individual's perspective, when you have your money at the uh, in the CD or you have your money in a, in a savings account, mm-hmm. uh, they're not charging you a negative interest. They're not making any spread because they're not making any money on that deposit. And so the banking industry usually makes money through the spread, the slope of the yield curve. So the, the differential between the 10-year rate and the uh, one-year rate is where they make their money because they lend at the 10-year rate 
and they borrow money at the uh, one-year rate, at the short rate. So again, all of this is saying, well, earnings for uh, large financial companies are under pressure. Financial companies, maybe about 18% of the S&P 500. Uh, energy, that's I want to say- That's a big chunk of right, it. Right, there's another 8%, so you're at like 26%, and where you're seeing earnings growth is in the tech companies, but mm. prices there are much, much, much higher. And so, so far this year, what we've seen is we've seen value stocks actually start to do a little bit better than growth stocks okay. uh, because growth is not as is not materializing to the to the extent that uh, people are that growth investors are looking for. They but want value the big pop, right, right? But value stocks are becoming more attractive as interest rates go lower. Sure, and also you get a dividend yield too. Usually, you get a dividend yield from the from the from the uh, value stocks that you don't get from the growth stocks, which are taking all the profits and just reinvesting it in, in into growth effectively. Sure. Yeah, I wanted to ask about uh, uh, energy in specific um, uh, oil prices. There was an OPEC meeting that just wrapped yesterday. Uh, there wasn't, I guess, and initially there was hope that there was going to be some sort of agreement reached that right. they would cut production. Um, Saudi Arabia, uh, for one instance, to uh, one million barrels per day. Didn't really materialize, but what we got out of that was an agreement for an agreement, and I think that's kicked the can down the road to uh, late November. So right. after the U.S. election, a lot of things can happen, I suppose, between now and then. But we're looking at maybe there's going to be a shoring up of oil resources. Um, I, do you have any uh, speculation about that? It's very, very hard uh, to get sort of this this conglomerate of OPEC to not defect, so to get everyone to agree to production levels. It's yeah. like it's like from a game theory perspective, it's it's almost impossible uh, to get uh, the collusion to occur in OPEC so that one someone doesn't say, okay, as the price goes up, let's let's pump a little bit more oil. Sure. Okay, so over long periods of time, yes, you could see a spike in oil, but oil prices, I believe, are more being driven by weak demand at this point. I mean, you have weak demand and you have increased supply. Mm -hmm. uh, if oil prices go up. Uh, oil sand starts to uh, become more attractive, uh, fracking starts to become more attractive. Uh, so essentially what you have is you have this overhang of supply sitting there right. that if oil prices rise too much, is going to come down and just hit it and just keep it low. And I, I, I just don't see oil prices dramatically rising. And if I had to predict where oil prices are going to be in you know October of, of 2017, mm -hmm. I would say, tell me what the inflation rate is. Okay. Uh, maybe it's one and a half, two percent. I would say let's let's uh, let's model oil prices at increasing the rate of inflation. I just don't think over long periods of time you have these spikes upward and downward in oil. But I think the long-term view of oil producers is somewhat negative. I All think right. the technological <clears throat> change is working against them. And I think as that you mean alternative energy sources? alternative energy sources, alternative ways of generating oil. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a real movement, I believe, I want to say 2005, uh, with China's ascendancy in terms of GDP growth, mm -hmm. uh, the peak oil uh, concept, right, Malthusian right. idea that because the, the world, Chinese were using so the much Chinese oil. are we're going to use so much oil. There was a limited amount of oil. Oil is going to spike. It's going to spike so quickly. We're not going to have alternatives. And uh, the, the same argument was used for population growth by Malthus, is that the you know exponential population growth is going to cause the world uh, to become uninhabitable in 50 years, et cetera. Hmm. And in both cases, what happened is the, ex the, the growth stopped. In, in, in terms of population growth, people, once they, joined, once they were in a developed country, they did not have uh, large, large families. The family size started to fall. Sure. And in terms of oil, as soon as the oil price got up, 
there was a massive technological change that occurred in the U.S. that caused a massive increase in supply of oil. Fracking. So, right. So it's like it's not over long periods of time. If I was to predict 20, 30 years into the future, I would not. I, I don't see a scenario where Exxon Mobil is still in the top 10 companies in terms of uh, market cap. I, I, I see alternative energies. I see changes occurring. I see uh, all that has to happen is one large technological change in energy production, and it puts Exxon really in on a downward path. So it, think about a decade ago, right. uh, Exxon Mobil, I think, was the the largest com- com- company right. by market cap right. in the entire world. Right. And there's a there's a there's a there's a theory or an investment strategy that says you look at the absolute largest uh, companies by market cap and you short them. Uh, because uh, they're they're not going to continue. They've they've been able to ascend to that level because of all these factors just going correctly right for them. Microsoft becomes the largest in 2000. So when you see a new type of company uh-huh. starting to become near the top, that's an indication that that whatever is pushing that company forward is likely not going to be continued to be sustained over time. Microsoft's monopoly doesn't uh, uh, persist, and Exxon's uh, you know. Demand for oil all of a sudden starts to change through the sure. technological change. So I'm not so over the long haul. I don't look at the energy companies and say these are tremendous investments. I think you need exposure to them uh, about in line with the market, if not a little bit lower than the market. Mm-hmm. But it's not something that I would run out and say, okay, there's some disconnect here between oil prices currently and what they're going to be a year from now. I don't think I think the peak oil was just a, a reflection of high oil prices and likely when you're when you're trying to predict what's going to happen to oil prices uh, you estimate that it's going to increase at the rate of inflation effectively. okay conversely then uh, you're saying tech companies maybe stand to gain a little bit more uh, coming up in Q3 uh, uh, although they've been on a pretty good tear uh, in 2016 as, as it is if you think about it tech companies should actually if you think about a company like Facebook and, and we do own Facebook uh, in our uh, all cap core strategy, which has performed very well over long periods of time, it's, it's you know it's it's over two percent of the portfolio. Um, when you look at a company like Facebook and you think how does a lower interest rate environment affect a growth company, and if you actually model where the earnings growth or dividends that Facebook might potentially pay, mm-hmm. they're many years into the future. Sure, right. So if I look at uh, GE's dividend. They're paying dividends now. If I look at ExxonMobil's dividends, they're paying dividends now. Right. If I look at Facebook's dividends, they're paying dividends years into the future after the earnings growth comes and becomes totally mature. And, they and there's no into growth, it. and they settle into the same way Microsoft. People thought Microsoft would never pay a dividend. Eventually, they have to pay yeah, a dividend. Apple. It's the only way that the stocks generate any value. But if you think about this, you have one company that's a value company where the uh, dividend payments are occurring very, very soon. To the current time period, right? And you have a growth company where the dividend payments, if they occur, are going to occur years upon years into the future. If interest rates go lower for longer than people are expecting, it should affect the present value of those future dividend payments more than the present value of the current dividend payments. Okay, explain what you mean by that. Okay, so if, if interest rates are at five percent, okay, and I want to say what's the value of a dollar? that is paid to me uh, 10 years from now, mm-hmm. I take, uh, I, I discount it at that 5% rate for 10 years. Okay. So I say, how much money do I have to invest now to have a dollar 
five, let's say it's 5% and let's say it's 12 years, uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, 12, 13 years from now, okay? And I would have to invest about 15, 50 cents now to get about a dollar uh, about 14 years from now, okay? Right. Now, if the interest rate is only 1%, mm-hmm. I would only have to invest about 85 cents to get a dollar a little bit less, probably about 82 cents to get a dollar uh, 14, 15 years from now. Okay. So the lower, the higher the interest rate, the lower the interest rate, the more dollars in the far future are worth to me. Okay. Okay. So tech companies' cash flows that they're going to give to investors are coming far, far in the future. So they're more uh, sensitive to changes in interest rates. Sure. If I talked about when when am I going to get, I think about Facebook as a company, the entire dividends Facebook is always is going to pay. Those dividends aren't going to start for another 10, 15 years. Okay. I, I think you're coming like Exxon and say, what are the entire dividends Exxon are going to pay? I'm saying, well, I'm going to get a large portion of that dividend money in the next 10 years, mm-hmm. maybe the next 20 years. And right. then, then it might peter down, right? So again, Growth stocks should be more sensitive to a lower interest rate environment uh, than value stocks. So if interest rates go lower for longer than people are expecting, there should be a disproportionate effect of increasing growth stocks than increasing value stocks. And that's kind of what's also hitting the hedge fund world is that you have every, there are no, there are very, very few hedge fund managers left that are quote growth managers. Okay. So there, there aren't that many managers left that are, you know, we're trying to find a company. We think it's going to grow at 30% per year. Everyone else thinks it's going to grow at 15% per year. We want to invest. No, all these managers all follow Graham and Dodd. They're all value investors. So when interest rates go lower for longer than what people are expecting, it's going to hurt the value investors mm-hmm. and it's going to help the growth investors. Right. But then when interest rates start to go up, it's going to reverse. And the value investors are going to be helped, and the growth investors are, are going to be hurt a little you bit. You see that directly. And, and, so, and so what's happened for the past eight years is you've seen interest rates lower for longer than what's expected. Mm-hmm. Everyone in hedge fund land is looking for valuation. Right. And they get hit a little bit. And the index, which doesn't have a growth or a value bias, outperforms. Because it has a market cap bias, essentially. So a larger market cap, if if Facebook becomes a large market cap company, it's going to have a large weight in the index. Sure. Where you don't have many uh, hedge funds running around saying there's tremendous value in the stock because of X, Y, and Z, essentially. Very good. So so, so you're going to see the with the lower interest rate environment, it should help growth investors over time because the discounted cash flow of the dividend payments is more affected by a lower interest rate. Very good. You're listening to Mitch Zacks, a portfolio manager and founding principal at Zacks Investment Management uh, here on The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. Uh, to contact a representative at Zacks Investment Management, call 800 249 2934. And there you can discuss managing your retirement assets. Uh, for more information, you can email ZimInfo at Zax.com. Also, visit the website, ZimWealth.com. Um, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back with more Steady Investor for the third segment. Um, thank you for sticking with us and uh, stick around. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Thanks for staying with us. We're The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zach's Investment Management. This is Mark Vickery, uh, joined today by Mitch Zachs, the Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal, as well as the co-host of The Steady Investor um, at Zachs Investment Management. Uh, Mitch, um, we're having a good time talking about uh, stuff today, and I wanted to focus on a couple articles uh, from the Mitch on the Markets segment at Zachs Investment Management online. Okay. Um, the first one I wanted to talk about uh, is the, the headline is the question, should your portfolio wait to small cap stocks? And uh, we've seen small cap stocks have been on a tear in 2016. Um, uh, and, and first of all, what I wanted to say, we've been talking about the S&P 500 right. as the general uh, benchmark index. Um, here, you're, you're basing the small cap portfolios that Zach's Investment Management has on the Russell 2000. Is that correct? Yes. So if you think about Russell, does what, what Russell does is they take all the companies ranked by market cap. So okay. they'll take the company with the largest market cap, that'll be ranked number one. The next largest market cap is ranked number two, et cetera, down the road. The companies that are ranked between 1,000 and 3,000 mm. in market cap become the Russell 2000. And that itself is a market cap weighted index. So we take all the companies, we rank them by market cap. The first 1,000, we say those are large cap companies. The next ones that are ranked between 1,000 and 3,000 those are considered small cap companies. And within those small cap companies, we don't equal weight it, we market cap weight it. And what okay. people have to understand is that if you look amongst those companies that are between 1,000 and 3,000 in market cap, you actually find a reasonable number of regional banking companies. Okay. Okay. So smaller banks. Smaller banks. So every uh, regional bank that's a billion dollar, two billion dollar bank, five hundred million dollar bank, and there are large numbers of them in the U.S. because the U.S. used to have this very fragmented system where banks weren't allowed to become uh, too large. They had to focus on, on, and then they changed the regulations of it. Uh, but basically, you you have regional banks. So let's just talk about banking. Sure. Okay. So in the small cap arena, we have regional banks. And in the large cap arena, 
we have Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan. That's right. Okay. So let's worry about Brexit. Okay. All right. Where is what's going to affect? Well, the small cap bank, not much is concerned there. What they're concerned about are interest rates, maybe uh, the amount of uh, compliance they have to engage in that that, that, that hampers their business. Maybe but regional employment. regional employment, things of that sort. Yeah. But they're not really concerned about what's happening whether Britain leaves the euro. It doesn't affect their loans to the small businesses in their area. It doesn't affect their loans uh, as mortgages to people buying houses in their area. It doesn't affect their treasury operations. It doesn't affect their wealth management operations. Mm -hmm. JP Morgan, there's some huge effect that's occurring. Now let's talk about uh, derivative exposure. Okay, so there's a big issue with Deutsche Bank. They're coming under pressure. Uh, because uh, Merkel, the, the head of, of Germany, said derivatives, by the way, meaning uh, uh, alternative alternative trading instruments. Okay, so Deutsche Bank essentially came under some pressure, uh, where Merkel, the head of the German uh, government, said that they would not bail out Deutsche Bank if it went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And again, this is the major issue: is that the the, the capitalization there is, you know, maybe fifteen billion dollars or something of that sort, maybe sixteen billion, mm-hmm. and they have x, uh, you know, ten times that in uh, derivative exposure. Okay. So again, the issues that are driving the concerns about the banking industry mm-hmm. are focused on larger cap banks than smaller cap banks. So the problems are pretty much Right. Now the smaller cap banks are tied to the larger cap banks. They do business in, in the with them. in the 08 crisis, uh, you know, you had Fannie Mae preferred stock uh, that went bankrupt. You you had you had things like this occur where the small banks had a large portion of their assets invested in it. They thought it was a it was a quasi-government institution, mm-hmm. and they say the preferred stock is going to go to, uh, to zero. They also so, weren't too big to fail. Right. They weren't, a lot of them did fail. That is a very good point, Mark. And that was the issue, is that the large banks didn't have all this preferred stocks in these quasi-government entities, so they just let the quasi-government entity fail. Whatever was bothering the large bank, they had to make sure it was it was it was it was not sure, failed. It's more systemic, though. Right, but generally speaking, if you look at this and you look at the banking industry in the small cap space and in the large cap space, you come to the conclusion that the small cap banks, I think, are more attractive right now than the large cap banks. The large cap banks are much cheaper. If you look at price to book ratios, you're going to find much lower price to book ratios. So if things start to recover, you might have more recovery occur in the large cap uh, sector. Uh, But the small cap banks are looking attractive because they're not exposed to the same sort of risks directly. Now, the issue is they're all uh, interconnected. So if the risks start to hit the large banks, it's eventually going to very quickly hit the small banks. But if you have the large banks become these sort of utility type companies, where equity is tightly controlled, everything is tightly managed. Uh, you know, the, the amount of uh, risk capital they have is kept in a very, very uh, close range. You saw with Deutsche Bank, as soon as their capital fell, they went off and they they sold an insurance company that they had bought at a previous time mm-hmm. uh, to raise capital. If those continue to be a focus, so that they are stable, the smaller banks, even though they're interconnected, should tend to do a little bit better. So generally speaking. Smaller cap banks should be doing better than larger cap banks in the current environment because the risks are less exposed to the smaller cap banks than the larger cap banks. Additionally, you should see some acquisition activity 
of these smaller cap banks into larger banking institutions so that they could be more uh, easily and regulated. And at a premium, so that would also help. Exactly, market, right? exactly. So generally speaking, small cap stocks right now, I think uh, they're, they're more expensive than large cap stocks. But if you see a recovery occur in the economy, small caps are going to do probably a little bit better than large caps. Also, small caps are less exposed to fluctuations in the dollar. Remember, we talked okay. about the large caps having 45%, 50% of the total revenue overseas. And it's right. either selling, uh, creating the, the good in the U.S. and selling overseas or creating the good overseas and selling overseas. In the small cap space, there's not the same level of uh, foreign exposure. Right. So they're more focused on the U.S. domestic economy. And the U.S. domestic economy is a much stronger economy at this point uh, than than the foreign uh, than, than what's going on in Europe. Okay. So you're you're more exposed to the economic uh, environment that's growing, and that would help explain why the P multiple is a little bit higher. Also, uh, smaller cap stocks are more dependent on bank financing for growth than larger cap stocks. Sure. If a large cap company wants to issue debt, they will issue a bond. They'll be large enough they can go to the actual fixed income market and issue a bond. Most small cap companies, uh, if they want to grow through debt, they will go and they will borrow money directly uh, from the bank effectively. From a big bank. From a big, from a big bank, from a regional bank, okay. they'll borrow money from the bank. So low interest rate environment also tends to help uh, smaller caps a little bit more uh, than larger caps. So. Easy access to capital, again, is helping small caps. So small caps are more expensive than large caps. They're, you can think of them as higher beta stocks. They're going to move high, farther than the market. The market goes up, they should do better. The market goes down, they should do worse. Over long periods of time, 10 years, 15 years, my belief is that, a and, and the data seems to back this up, it's a little controversial, uh, but that the small cap stocks will outperform because you're bearing a little bit more risk. Okay, my question to you about that is when interest rates do rise, and we are yeah. probably going to see at least one in the next, let's say, six months or yes. so, is that going to have a negative effect compared to the large banks for the regional banks, or do you see that as still uh, net positive? Uh, whenever there's stress on the market, small cap stocks handle it worse. All right. Okay. So no matter what the stress is on the market, if it's a taper tantrum, it's a geopolitical event, if it's a recession, if it's uh, some uh, occasion where there's some group of stocks that are coming under pressure, uh, if it's a financial crisis, small cap stocks almost always handle it worse. In the last crisis, it wasn't completely the case, but it generally was. If you looked at what the S&P did, uh, peak to trough, and you looked at what the Russell did, the Russell uh, uh, got hit harder. And the reason is just the the larger companies, uh, you know, if you worried about something occurring in the banking sector, first of all, the larger companies are the one that's going to be too big to fail, and they have greater capital cushion to some extent sure. uh, of, of what can happen. So if something is going wrong, they have a greater ability to raise capital uh, than these other people do. So if a, if a regional bank is running into problems with capital, it's the regional bank's issue. If JP Morgan is running into problems with capital, it's the entire society. It's the taxpayer's it's, 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 it's everyone's <laughs> issue. So it's, it's so the issue is they, they so they don't run into problems, you know, because right. and that and you saw that in the crisis. The smaller banks, the ones that really had problems, were some of these smaller banks that happened to have a large portion of their assets in fixed income securities, either CDOs or preferred stock of Fannie Mae or something of that sort that went to zero. Right. The larger banks were a little bit more diversified, but generally speaking, 
you should view smaller cap stocks as large cap stocks with higher betas and uh, higher risk levels. Right. Standard deviation is higher. When things are going well, they will go up farther. When the market rallies, small caps do better than large caps. When the market comes under pressure, small caps generally do worse uh, than large caps. Now, all of this research is based upon uh, some research that came out of the University of Chicago in around 1982 when they looked at small caps relative to large caps. And they said, my goodness, over long periods of time, small caps dramatically outperformed large caps. Uh, but the argument against that is that it only really takes hold when you get into the very, very smallest cap fractiles of the uh, capitalization that is outstanding. The small of the, uh, smallest the, the, the of the very, small. The very, very, the smallest of the small. And these are so small that most investors who are institutional investors are not investing in this. Okay. So, so the question is not if, if there's a capitalization benefit, it's not in the Russell ranking 1,000 to 1,800. It's in the Russell ranking from twenty five hundred to three thousand. Interesting. And in our in our small cap, in you know, in some of the strategies that we run, we tend to have in some of the strategies a bias towards the smaller cap of the small cap stocks. And again, you're in the top three thousand, so you're not talking about micro cap. You're talking about smaller cap. You're talking about market caps probably above uh, two hundred million. Uh, but they tend to perform a little bit better statistically over time than the larger cap ones in the small cap space. Now, if you're positive on the equities market in general, that's a good thing, right? That's even more of a good thing because they, they tend to do better, right? Yes, but the issue is that if, if the it really comes down to the dollar. If the dollar starts to really appreciate, I think it will hit the larger caps more than the smaller caps. The smaller caps, though, from a valuation standpoint, just are not as attractively valued as the larger cap stocks. Okay. Uh, one thing also I wanted to ask you, once interest rates do rise, yeah. um, we're still going to see a positive outcome for smaller banks too because they're able to now charge a higher rate themselves. Every time you start seeing interest rates rise, XLF, which is the ETF for the uh, capitalization weighted of the finance sector, uh, tends to do better than the market. Right. So if you see interest rate, if interest rates really stay very low for a very long period of time, you're, you're going to likely see, uh, you know, uh, banks come under pressure. But again, the Federal Reserve Bank is the bank to the banks. They are beholden to the banks. The banks want higher interest rates so their earnings go up. Mm -hmm. I would, I fully expect in December there to be an increase in interest rates, the market to uh, take a little bit of a, a sell-off, a little bit as it always has done, mm -hmm. and go forward. The other thing that we, we didn't talk about is that there is, this is a weird calendar anomaly, but there is a period of time, called, there's an effect called the January effect, okay. which is that in January, what they found statistically over time is that the very, very smallest cap stocks uh, tend to outperform the market. And what they think is happening is that the smallest cap stocks are owned mostly by uh, individual holders uh, that are subject to taxes. Right. And what happens is they take, uh, you know, the stock might be down a little bit uh, in 2016. They sell the stock in December, okay, right. more than they should to recognize the tax losses. Right. And so what you find in January is the stocks that tend to do the best are those smaller cap stocks that have poor momentum, that have underperformed, have a negative return mm -hmm. in 2016. And again, you're talking about a $100 million, $200 million market cap company. All the individuals owning that are taxable individuals. They're like, well, 
let me just take my loss in December uh, so I can reduce my taxes. And they all do it in the same month, which is December. So the price becomes depressed at the end of December. Overly so. Overly so. So then January, these smaller cap stocks uh, tend to outperform. But again, the statistics of this is that when it's brought into the larger cap uh, groups, uh, you know, so you're not talking about very, very sort of small cap stocks, but the larger, the bigger half of the small cap stocks, the January effect uh, seems to lose some of its efficacy. So it's mostly on the smallest of those. Uh, the the of- explanation for it is tax loss harvesting for losses. Mm-hmm. So you have to say that where it's going to where it's going to uh, show up is in tax loss harvesting of losses that are owned mainly by individual investors. Very good. So if you have a very micro cap company that's like 35 or $40 million, you might want to do a screen and find all the ones that have a negative price performance in 2016 and buy them in the last two days of the trading session and hold them for a month. And this is the absolute not way that you should manage your assets, uh, but it's a good way <laughs> if you want to make a uh, you know a, a nice trade potentially. Uh, sure. It tends to work over Definite time. Definite food for thought. We're going to have to wrap it right here. Thanks for listening uh, to The Steady Investor here on Voice America's Business Channel. Um, we'll be back again next week, uh, and we hope you will uh, join us then too. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for? Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 